Amen. You know, this morning we were even debating whether or not we would have the staff and the volunteers to, to be able to have worship today. And so I'm just very thankful for our worship team, some of whom came 40, 45 minutes, our uh, children's volunteers, uh, our tech team, security, uh, hospitality. Can we just give a round of applause to our faithful volunteers today? Yeah. Yeah. And an applause to you as well for uh, braving the cold and uh, scraping off your cars and getting here this morning. Um, last week I preached on John 15, and I, there's just so much in John 15, and I, I regretted that um, I had only been able to cover a fraction of what is spoken in John 15, and so I decided that today I would take another, uh, another crack at John 15 and try to cover some of those pieces that I missed uh, the first time we went through. And last week when I, when I preached on John 15, as we're entering into 2024, a lot of us are thinking about the year ahead of us. And uh, I challenged us to think about what that year would look like and uh, encouraged us to, to think about not trying to achieve success in our lives, shooting for success. A lot of us are very success-driven, but rather to think about our lives in terms of fruitfulness. Are our lives bearing fruit? And that comes with daily abiding in Christ. And one of the things I spoke about last week as well was that we should be less achievement-oriented and more focused on the process. Uh, God has each one of us in a gradual process by which we are becoming more like Him and achieving fruit in our life. And I, I said finally that the, the real key to fruitfulness was friendship with Jesus. And so a year that we live pursuing identity in Christ, right, knowing who I am, knowing who I am in Christ, would probably be more beneficial, more fruitful for you than anything else that you would uh, seek to pursue in your life. And so today we're going to be taking a further look, and I, I want to talk about this invitation that Jesus gives to each one of us today, and especially as we think about 2024, and that is to an invitation into a life of lasting, joyful fruitfulness. Lasting, joyful fruitfulness is sort of the key for today. So let's take a look at John chapter 15. We're going to read those, those same verses from last week, verses 1 through 17. You can follow along um, up top, or you can look page 901 in your pew Bibles. Starting at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may be more fruitful. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, 
that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So that's the passage for today. We're going to be taking a look again at the inv- this invitation to lasting, joyful fruitfulness. And before I even uh, talk about the, the three things connected with that, I just want to make note of a, a couple words that really stand out here. And that one is joy and the other is lasting. So kind of the heart of this passage is if you take a look at verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that your joy may be, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You know, a lot of times uh, folks outside the church, when they think about religious people or they think about Christians, they imagine people who are so serious and uh, perhaps somewhat severe and very rule-following and austere. But uh, for Jesus, that's really not at all what following him is about. He says, as you're abiding in me, your joy will will be filled. It will be overflowing. And the life of following Christ is not meant to be dour and serious, but it is meant to be uplifting and and joy-filled. This past week, uh, my wife and I had the uh, good fortune of um, a friend of ours gave birth. And uh, the baby was a little bit early, uh, only five pounds. But when my wife saw the picture and she showed me and shared, you know, our friend finally had a baby, you know, we felt joy. And there's a kind of natural joy that comes with an announcement of a birth. I'm sure you've experienced this. Um, and uh, just the wonder of a new life that is in the world. And also the realization that, you know, our friend, this is her first child, you know, her life's never going to be the same. And now we've welcomed this new li- She's welcomed this new life into the world. And it, and it creates joy. Uh, but that's just momentary joy. Uh, when Jesus promises joy, he's not saying you're going to have a moment of joy here or a moment of joy there. He said, your joy is going to be complete. Uh, in the NIV, your, 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 your joy will be complete. Your joy is going to be full. It's going to be overflowing. Uh, the, the life of fruitfulness that Jesus invites us into is a life of ongoing, overflowing joy. That's one thing I'll say. Uh, another interesting thing, if you look at verse 16, is the, the repeated use of that word abide. He says, you did not chose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus doesn't want us just to bear temporary fruit, but fruit that will abide. Now, I preached on that word abide last week. You remember the, the, the word abide is used over and over in this scripture, in this passage. But Jesus is saying, abide in me, right? Obey my commands, follow me, let your let my word abide in you. So He's saying over and over, abide in me. But then that very same word, and it's the exact same word in the Greek. It's the word meno, which means remain. That Jesus says, I want you to abide in me, but I want your fruit to abide. And so the fruitfulness, the joyful fruitfulness that we're being invited into here from from Jesus and John is not just temporary fruit, occasional fruit, but abiding fruit. Uh, Those of you who lived in New York City, Probably, if you lived in a small apartment, one of your favorite stores is Ikea. And so we uh, traveled to Ikea when we first moved to New York. We got a bunch of stuff. 
Uh, and we moved to New York City about six times. So one time we had the movers come and they're packing up our stuff. And the mover comes into our apartment and he takes one look at our cupboards. He says, is that Ikea? I'm like, uh, yeah, that, that's Ikea. He says, sorry, sir, we're not going to move that. Uh, that. That's not coming with you. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, trust me, it's not going to survive the move. And then he kind of pushed it. And like the cupboard kind of tilted over. I'm like, yeah, it probably, probably is not going not gonna to survive the move. He's like, and then if it breaks, it's on us. So we don't even touch that stuff. So being Dutch, you know, I'm frugal. So we tried to salvage as much of the Ikea furniture and bring it along to the next apartment. But sometimes it would get to the next apartment, but then it's collapsing, it's falling apart. So you end up having to throw it out anyway. But maybe the Ikea furniture will make one move, but it certainly is not going to survive two. That has never happened. Um, so, but you go to an antique store, my wife and I, we love on a, on a day off to, to go antiquing, and it's, you know, you, you go into an antique store sometimes and you find a cupboard or a table and a chair, and this thing is a hundred years old, and it's still solid, right? Still works well, and uh, is able to hold weight. And so my, my question to you is, do you want your life to be more like the Ikea furniture, or do you want it to be like that good quality stuff? Perhaps restoration hardware or some other more expensive kind of furniture. I mean, if money were no object, I'm sure that if, if any of you asked any of us, well, which kind of furniture would you like? You want the IKEA furniture that's not going to last you, or you want the good stuff? You want the stuff that will last? We would all say, yeah, give, if I could afford it, I would go for the good stuff. So then the question is, well, what about our lives? And are we looking to have a little bit of fruit here, a little bit of fruit there, but ultimately we're not producing that lasting, permanent kind of fruit that's going to endure on through the judgment and into eternity. And so Jesus is inviting us not to produce Ikea fruit, but to produce real fruit, lasting fruit in our lives. So having said that, we're going to look at a couple things then about this this invitation to lasting joyful fruitfulness. What does that look like? Well, the first thing is that there are a couple non-negotiables. And Jesus is very clear. He he lays it out. You know, I'm the type of person that if you if you give me a proposal or you tell me something, I always try to to push back a little bit. You know, I was buying a uh, I was buying a dishwasher, and the 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 salesperson said, you know, sorry, I don't think our plumbers really can handle installing the dishwasher in a kitchen island. I'm like, no, no, no. It, I, I'm sure they can because there's a dishwasher there now. It's already set up, and they just need to swap it out. And he said, sir, this wasn't like a conversation. I'm telling you, they can't do it. So I'm like, okay fine, then we'll have to find our own plumber. So I, I appreciate sometimes, you know, just be upfront with me. If this is not negotiable, that's fine. And so Jesus, I think not to scare us, not to intimidate us, he wants to be very clear because there's simply too much at stake here. So there are really two non-negotiables. Take a look with me at verse 4 and 5, and we'll see the, the first non-negotiable here. Verse 4 and 5, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen, you don't, you don't have to be a farmer to realize that if you go outside and you cut a branch off of a tree, right, that branch is going gonna, is gonna to die. It's going to fall to the ground and die. 
So the whole idea here, Jesus is being very clear that there is no fruitfulness unless you remain connected to the source of life, which is the vine. In the same way that a branch can't bear fruit unless it's connected to the main tree, Jesus is being very clear here that the only way, friends, that we can expect to see any kind of fruitfulness in our lives is by remaining connected to Jesus. And so my question for each one of us to consider this morning, are you looking to Jesus for your own fruitfulness in your life? Where are you looking to draw strength and to draw inspiration? Because are you looking to other religions? Are you looking to meditation? Are you looking to new age spirituality? Right? The world says these things are great. Find strength in these things. Find life in these things. But Jesus is unequivocally clear. He's, this is a non-negotiable. He says, if you want to have lasting fruit, right, fruit that will endure on into eternity, the only way to have life is through me, is through staying connected to me. I am the true vine. If you do not remain connected to the branch, you will die, and the, those branches will be cut off, and they'll be thrown into the fire, he says. So Jesus is, is, is very clear. The Bible is very clear. I realize, right, that this is not a politically correct thing to say. It's not politically correct for me to get up here on Sunday morning and say Jesus is the only way. But I'm saying it because even though for some of us that might be a hard truth, this is what the Scripture teaches. And Jesus is clear. In John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our society wants to teach that different religions are all different paths, but, but we're all on the same mountain and that if we follow those paths, eventually we'll all reach the same place. Friends, that is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus says there is one path. There is one way to have your sins forgiven. There is one way to be made right with your Father. There is one way to be justified, and that is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. It is through what He has done on the cross, and it is by faith in the name of Jesus Christ that a person is saved. It's not through good works. It's not through being a good person. It's not through some vague New Age spirituality. Those do not work. The only way to produce abiding, lasting fruit and life is to stay connected to Jesus. It is non-negotiable. Non-negotiable number two. Uh, take a look back with me, verse 2a, and then we'll also look at verse 6 as well. So in verse 2a, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then a little bit later on in verse 6, he says that if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into a fire and burned. So another non-negotiable here that, that we see Jesus uh, teaching is that the producing of fruit is not optional. It's not optional. Right? Jesus says, if you are really in me, you will produce fruit. Your life will change. It will be evidenced in your life through your works, through your actions, through the kind of character that you are doing. To be in me is necessarily uh, to produce fruit. And so then that raises a question. Is Jesus saying that there might be people who appear to be in him but aren't producing fruit and that those people are going to eventually be uh, disconnected from Jesus and cast into the fire? Is it possible 
And I ask you to consider this this morning, that there are people that look like Christians. They appear to be Christians. They go to church. They might even be considered brothers and sisters among us, but who unfortunately do not produce real fruit in their lives. And so therefore, they are at risk. They are in danger of being disconnected from Jesus. Is, is Jesus really saying that? And I think if we're honest... Right? And we look at ourselves and we look at the lives of people around us, then we can recognize the truth that that actually is the case. It actually is the case that there are false branches. That there are people that walk among us, people that go to church, people that would call themselves their brothers or sisters, but you look at their life and their lives don't actually produce the fruit of the vine. Their lives do not give evidence of having been connected to the vine. And so Jesus is not saying this in order to scare us or to threaten us, but it's merely to, to say a truth that if you are truly in Christ, that will impact your life. It will change the kind of person that you are. And if it's not, so if you're in Christ, and if you're wearing the Christian label and you're doing the quote-unquote Christian stuff, but you are, your life is filled with anxiety and anger and resentment, and you're not producing the fruit in keeping with the vine, then you've got to ask yourself some really tough questions about whether or not your faith is genuine and whether or not you're really living a life of faith and repentance. A passage where Jesus speaks to this um, very explicitly is Matthew chapter 7. And I'm not going to speak too much about it. I'm going to let these words speak for themselves. So reflect on it. This is what he says, Matthew chapter 7, verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He's speaking about the reality of people that are in the church, people that do Christian things, and yet their lives are not characteristic of genuine fruitfulness. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons? in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then will I declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness you know personally I, I find those words to be terrifying because what that means is that I could be up here on Sunday morning preaching to you week in and week out and telling you what the Bible says and yet my life might not give evidence of genuine fruitfulness, right? You might be doing all the right stuff that religion tells you to do, and you might be going through the motions, but the question is, what kind of character is God building within you? Are you becoming more Christ-like? Are you moving towards righteousness? Jesus says you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you, right? We, if we are in Christ, we have been justified. We have been forgiven of our sins. The question is, are we living that out? in the way we communicate, the way we treat our loved ones, the way we treat our coworkers. Fruit is not optional. Now, part of this, maybe it feels threatening, but I think Jesus also means it to encourage you. Fruit is not optional. So what he's saying is, if you are in me, if you're abiding in me, what this means is that you ought to be able to have an expectation that God is at work in your life and that you gradually will be seeing transformation. 
Right? If you are in Christ, you ought to, be having ex- ought to be able to have an expectation that your life will bear evidence of the kingdom of God. And so as you look to your life and you do see fruit, this is a big encouragement. Right? If you look back over your life and, and you recognize, you know what, I, I think I have changed. My attitude has changed. I, I think I've become more gentle. Maybe in marriage, you, you've found that you've become more compassionate to your spouse and to your kids. That's great. Right? That, that's evidence of your sanctification, and it, it's proof of the work of God in your life. So we ought to be able to look at our lives and point to things. And this is not pride. This is not pride, right? The, 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 the gospel, when it comes into our hearts, it produces change. And we ought to be able to say, by God's grace, I see the power of God at work in me in bringing about these very real changes. I've become more loving. I've become more patient. I've become more gentle. So that's true. The flip side is also true that if you're here on Sunday morning and you're hearing all this stuff, but you look at your life and you realize, I'm filled with anger. I'm filled with resentment. I don't, actually don't treat people very well. And I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm giving into sin in my life. I'm not seeing any victory over sin. And, and I see more. I, I don't see evidence of the work of God in my heart. Then, friends, this is a wake-up call. And saying, you may call yourself a Christian and you may be showing up, but if the Spirit of God is not at work in your life, bringing real transformation, it is time to come back to the gospel, right? What does Peter say? He says, make every effort to add to your life goodness and faithfulness and perseverance. I'm not quoting it perfectly. I'm sorry. But he says, if, if you do these things in increasing measure, then you have a rich reward in heaven. But if you do not see them, then you are nearsighted and blind and you've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten you've been cleansed from your past sins. You've forgotten that Jesus Christ gave his life for you and he died for you on a cross in order that you could be made righteous in the eyes of God and brought into God's family and filled with his spirit. You've forgotten the gospel. And so if, if you this morning, you look at your life and you're not seeing fruit, then it is, a, it is an invitation to engage in the very most fundamental response to the gospel, and that is what? Faith and repentance. Believe. Come back to faith. Believe. Turn from your sin. Repent of your sin and come into God's family. And today is the opportunity to do just that. So these are the non-negotiables. All right, moving on then, point number two, that greater faithfulness requires pruning. Take a look with me um, at verse two. And uh, there's a, a guy named Kyle that's a member of our church, and his dad owns a vineyard, and he, he was sharing about this, that when he was a kid, he would go and he would see the grapes. And when the grapes are first coming up, his father would go through and, and, and cut off a bunch of the different grapes. This is the pruning process in a vineyard. And then he said that once you had done that, then you would wait. And he said, the clusters of grapes that would grow on my father's vines after he did the pruning were unbelievably lush, just big, big clusters of grapes that developed as a result of this pruning process. So the pruning process that God does with us is something that God uses in your life to cause you to bear great greater fruit, to be more fruitful. Uh, Verse number two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes 
that it may more, bear more fruit. How many of you know that pruning involves cutting, and cutting is never painful? Amen? Right? It, it is not a pleasant experience when God is pruning things in our life, when He's cutting things away. And sometimes we may ask, God, God, why are you doing this? Lord, why am I experiencing this loss right now? Why am I, why am I experiencing this, this pain right now? Why are you letting these things happen in my life? It, God, it doesn't seem fair. But what if we shift our perspective and realize, okay, yeah, is it unpleasant at times? Yeah, life can be very hard. But what if God is actually trying to use those very things to prune you so that you and your life would become even more fruitful? If that's the case, then we can look at some of the difficult things in our lives and realize that this is actually not evidence that God doesn't care about us, but it's the flip. Right? Because what does Scripture teach about discipline? In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So the whole idea of pruning here is that it is actually evidence of God's love. That God prunes us, not because he hates us, but he prunes us because he loves us. And this pruning process can be a way that God's actually increasing the fruitfulness in our lives. So, what then would be a couple different ways that God prunes us? And I, I don't have time this morning to explain um, all the different ways, but I'll just share a couple of them this morning that, that I believe have scriptural basis. And one of them is that um, God sometimes puts us into a place of withholding things from us in order to prune prune us. Sometimes withholding can be one of the ways that God prunes us. Sometimes we may go through a, ses- a, a season where we are in desperate need of something that has been removed from our lives. This can be excruciatingly painful to go through a season of desperation, a season of waiting. Perhaps you are trying to have a baby and you're hoping and working and doing everything you can to make that happen. But God has not blessed you with that. He's withholding that from you. Uh, One of the most painful, probably not as painful as that, but similarly painful can be a season of unemployment. Perhaps God has pruned you from a job. You got let go. You got canned. You've been looking. You've been applying, coming up short, interviewing, submitting applications. Nothing is going through. God has withheld this from you, and so you are in a season of pruning, but God is using that pruning, using that fallow period in your life to bring out something that's going to be so much more beautiful and amazing than you could even have imagined. The Bible is filled with examples of this. Moses, young man, educated in the court of Pharaoh, thinks that he's a prince, thinks that he's something special. He goes and he kills an Egyptian. He becomes frightened when his Israelites say, who are you? You're going to kill us like you killed the, killed the Egyptian? And Moses has to run for his life, and he works in the desert as a shepherd for years and years and years. It is a pruning process. God is withholding status, withholding glory, He is in the desert. He is faithful. He's shepherding sheep. And yet God uses that withholding, uses that process 
to prepare him to be arguably one of the most incredible people in the, in the Old Testament, right? Moses, who's eventually going to go and lead the people out of slavery in Egypt and accomplish incredible things. Joseph had to be pruned. Joseph, this young man, big dreams, right? He thinks he's going to be above his brothers, even above his parents. He's prideful, but God has to prune him. And so his brothers sell him into slavery. And in slavery, he works for Potiphar, but he's betrayed by Potiphar's wife. He ends up in jail. In jail, he's learning. God's pruning him. He has no freedom. He has no status. He's just a prisoner. And yet God uses that process to prepare him to be somebody who will eventually save the lives of many people. And Joseph says to his brothers, Now you meant this to harm me, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. Genesis chapter 50, it's the way that that book ends, is a story of a person having been pruned and pruned and pruned, but then God used that to prepare him for the good work that he would later do in his life. Abraham and Sarah, another great example. God is pruning them. He's withholding from them. What is he withholding? A child. And they become older and older and older and never able to conceive and have a baby. God is pruning them and preparing them because God says someday your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And through that one child, Isaac, who would eventually come, God does incredible, fruitful work in Abraham and Sarah and it changes the world. The pruning process oftentimes feels unfruitful. So maybe God's pruning you, and you're like, this is a waste of time. I'm not doing anything. I'm not accomplishing anything, right? But a field has to lie fallow every now, fa- fa- sorry, has to lie fallow for a year every now and then so that it can rest so that when it is planted again and when the soil is tilled and new seeds are planted, it can be even more fruitful. Your life doesn't have to be constant, constant, constant production. Sometimes God's pruning us. He's saying, scale back. Rest. This is what Sabbath is about. You will be more fruitful in the future. Another way that God prunes us is through failure. There's nothing like failure to prune you and to create righteousness in your heart. Just think about Peter. Right? Peter was so prideful, and yeah, I'm the chief of the twelve, and yet he failed spectacularly. But God used that failure process in Peter's life in order to prepare him to be the rock for the church. Um, personal confession, you know, I have oftentimes felt like I wasn't measuring up as a pastor. We were in New York City for 16 years, I was planting a church. You know, New York City is filled with extremely successful pastors. Of course, Pastor Tim Keller, who we love you know, it's just, he's a giant in the world of New York City. He's a giant everywhere, but particularly in the heart and mind of New York City pastors, right? He is the man, right? He is successful. He's influential. He, he's in my backyard. So imagine you're trying to plant a church and, you know, people are always talking about Tim Keller, talking about Redeemer, and it's very easy to, just being honest, right? It's easy to be insecure. Feel like I'm nobody compared to him. And New York is filled with all these high-achieving, successful people. Pastors are the worst. You get together with other pastors. Well, you know, how are you doing in ministry? Yeah, good. You know, I got, we got all these programs going and all these new people are coming. How big is your church? They're always asking each other, how big is your church? It's like a total status thing in this city. So I went through periods where, you know, our church grew, uh, but it, it was always kind of a struggle, but I think that God withheld that success from me in order to teach me humility. And sometimes my wife and I joke that I think God kept me non-successful because I'll tell you, if I had been successful in New York City, I would have been the most arrogant and prideful person. So I really think that God was using that to, to shape me and, and to keep me humble. 
But, you know, we always think failure is bad. Like, oh, I failed. You know, the kid's uh, chess teacher used to say, you know, you don't lose in a game of chess, you learn. Failure is not always bad. Failure can be a way that you learn how not to do something, but it can be a way that God is preparing you for what is to come. Through failure, and I I don't even think I was really that much of a quote-unquote failure, but through that struggle, God taught me to be humble. God redefined my definition of humility. God gave me a heart for pastors, right? I recognize the struggle that a lot, of, a lot of pastors go through. I've been able to be in situations of coming alongside pastors to be able to encourage them. God taught me about redefining success. It's not all about work. It's not all about the job. He taught me about the importance of family. So you see, all this was pruning, right? God's just pruning, pruning those parts of me that he doesn't need pruning me so that I would become even more fruitful in my life. I love Thomas Edison, the inventor of the light bulb. He said, I've not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. And I think that's a great perspective, right? We don't fail. We learn. God uses this to prune us. And there's other ways as well, but we got to keep moving. So finally, the role of obedience for fruitfulness, the role of, of obedience. As Jesus is talking about abiding in me, this word comes up, and that is the word obey or obedience, obedience to God's command. So go ahead and take a look with me at um, chapter 15, verses 9 through 12 in your scripture. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. How do we abide in his love? He says, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commands and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So the idea of discipleship, of obeying the commands of God is absolutely essential when we imagine thriving and, and fruitful, fruitfulness in our lives. You cannot separate fruitfulness from obedience. But there is a possible misreading of this scripture here, uh, a, a, a way that we could misinterpret it as if Jesus is saying that if you want me to keep loving you, that you have to obey my commands. And if you don't obey me, then you won't, quote unquote, abide in my love, and then I won't love you anymore, and then your life won't be fruitful. Is that, is that really what he's saying? It seems like that. Like he said, if you want to abide in me, you have to obey. But let's take a closer look here at what, what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 9. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus is saying that he loves us. He loves you in the same way that his Father loves him. So how does the Father love the Son? And I would suggest to you this morning that the relationship within the three persons of the Trinity, there is a powerful, powerful dynamic that is at work between the three persons of the Trinity and that the love that the Father has for the Son might be arguably one of the most powerful forces of the entire universe, right? The love that God has for the Son is personal. I think we have a slide for this. It's personal, it's eternal, it's unconditional, it's sacrificial, and it's joyful. The love that the Father has for the Son, there's nothing like it. It's unfathomably beautiful and powerful. Now, Jesus is saying, 
that for him to abide in the love of the Father, that he obeys his Father's commands. Now, is Jesus suggesting that if he doesn't obey the, the Father's commands, that God the Father will stop loving him? Right? That can't be the case. That is not how it works. Why? Because the love of the Father is powerful, it's personal, and it's unconditional. Which means that, the, I realize this is a little technical for the third point. I apologize. Try to stick with me here, okay? I, I re, so, so is Jesus saying that if I don't obey the Father, if I don't obey his commands, he's not going to love me anymore? No. Because the love of the Father is unconditional. There's nothing that the Son can do to make the Father love him less. God already loves him with an unfathomable, powerful love. And so when Jesus says that he abides in the love of the Father by obeying his commands, he's not saying that the commands are somehow a way to get God to love him more, but rather that staying within obedience, following the will of the Father is a way, is the way to maximize the fruitfulness and enjoyment of the relationship that he has with his Father. We obey the commands of God to abide in God, not in order that God will love us. We're not trying to impress God. We're not trying to earn God's love. That's not how it works. We're saved by grace. God loves us with an, Jesus says, I love you in the same way my Father loves me. Abide in my love. How do we abide? By staying within his will, by obeying his commands. Right? Why? To earn his love? No but rather to maximize our fruitfulness and enjoyment of the love that God offers us freely in Christ. We obey his commands. We read the New Testament. We commit ourselves to discipleship. Just Grace Church, what do, we, what do we always say? Gather, grow, give, and go. We don't do these things to earn God's love. We do that to dwell within that love, to soak it up, and to enjoy it, and to live it out, to, to maximize the fruitfulness. That word obey... I think if we're honest, right, in our culture, it has somewhat of a negative connotation. Uh, in the city, I have a friend that worked at Google, and uh, he was a manager. He was describing to me how the, the, work, the work culture at, um, at Google is very horizontal. So even though he's a, he's a boss, he's a manager, he can't go in and just tell them what to do. <laughs> he has to, like, be very, very friendly with people and say, how, you know, how, how are you doing? He can't exert his authority. It, Google doesn't work like that. It's, it's all horizontal. So, you know, he has to come in and kind of be their friend and be a support. How can I support you? How can I, how can I encourage you? But, but he can't, you know, millennials and Gen Z, they don't like just taking orders, okay? So we don't, we don't, like, we don't, we don't like being told what to do. So, um, but we got to think here, this, this command to obey, what, what exactly is Jesus talking about? Well, he says, right, as you obey, our relationship does change. He says, you were my servants, but now I don't call you servants anymore. Now I call you my friends. So there is a, a horizontal effect there in what Jesus is bringing to his disciples. But then he says, but if you want to abide in me, obey my command. But what is my command? What is my command? What do I encourage you to do? Look at verse 12 through 14 with me. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus does have authority and he does have commands, but at the end of the day, his command is not a long list of religious rules and commandments. It all boils down to this one thing, and that is love. 
And Jesus himself does not ask us to do anything that he has not already done for us. He says there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And he himself is the epitome of that because he laid down his life for us. When he died on the cross, he, sa- he sacrificed his own life to take our sin on his shoulders so that we could know God and be reconciled with God. He says, this is how I've loved you. You want to know what fruitfulness in your life looks like? It looks like this. Obey this, the command to love. Grow in love for your family, for your neighbors, for your children, for the world. This is the epitome of growing in fruitfulness, is growing in love. So as we move towards our conclusion, there's an amazing, amazing nugget of truth that we see that I'll close with this, that we see in this passage. Take a look at verse uh, 16 with me. He says, you did not chose me, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That's an interesting promise right there at the end, that whatever you ask in my name, I will give it to you. What is Jesus saying here? That, that if we're abiding in him, that we could just ask God for whatever he wants and he's just going to answer all of our prayers? Well, obviously, there, there's some nuance here, right? God's not a genie in, a, in the bottle. God, God is not there to, to be kind of like, well, you need this or you want that. I'm just, you know, just rub that bottle and you get whatever you want from God, right? That's not exactly what Jesus is talking about. But Jesus is pointing to an amazing, joyful, and beautiful dynamic that can happen in the life of the believer. And that is when you are abiding in Christ and you are deep in God's word and that you are connected vertically, your heart and your mind on the same wavelength with God. There is a time where as believers, we develop a a connection, a, a, a being in sync with God. Uh, we are in harmony with Him. The Scripture talks about keeping step with the Spirit. We're in a dance with God, and He is leading, and we're following, and we're in His Word, and we're in His body, we're in church. And there's a connection where we are so aligned with the Father that whatever we pray, God acts, and God moves in response to our prayers. It is an amazing, amazing dynamic. And I found this past year, you know, that I I did this Bible reading program with my wife and a bunch of other friends. I've seen more answers to prayer this past year than than I've ever seen. I could just go back in my journal and look and see this prayer answered and that prayer answered, right? It is an amazing dynamic when you're in sync with your Father, you're abiding in Christ, and your mind and your heart are being guided by His Word, and you're filled with the Spirit. Things line up. I, I don't even know really how to explain it. But things line up, and your prayers take on a, a, a profound sense of power because you're praying according to God's will. And when you're praying according to God's will, and your heart and your mind is in tune with God, and you're obedient, and you're willing to be, sometimes you're the answer to your own prayers. Sometimes God wants to use you for what you think God ought to be doing in your life. But when you are in sync with God, a power is unleashed. I like what one of the commentaries said, the NIV commentary, it said, those whose lives are so in harmony with Jesus because we keep his word, find their prayers controlled by his word and such prayers will be answered and bring added glory to God. The goal here, the goal here is not that we have such good behavior and we're so holy that God has to listen to everything that we ask or that we can treat God like a genie 
the goal is that I am that we are so connected to Jesus, so in touch with his heart, so informed by his word that my thinking and my desiring and my acting are all in line with God's. And when I am keeping step with God in that way and thinking God's thoughts after him and feeling the heart of God and willing to be used by God for what he wants to do in my life, friends, there is power that is unleashed in that, in being in harmony with God. And so to be a partner with God, a friend of Jesus, is more joyful and beautiful and more fruitful than anything else. And my hope and prayer for all of us is that we would abound in that very kind of fruitfulness. Will you please pray with me? Lord God, you've taught us to pray according to your will. Pray for your kingdom come, for your glory to be known, to be made known in this world. Lord, we do pray for your will to be done and for your kingdom to come. We pray that our lives would be more and more in sync with you. I pray for this congregation and even for myself that more and more we would be abiding in you at every moment, that we would be deep within your word, that we would be connected to the body of Christ, and that our lives would yield incredible, lasting, joyful fruit. And I pray that today may be a day that we turn more fully towards you, that we turn away from sin, we turn away from those things that hold us back and just are more completely submitted to you, to be used by you for your purposes in our lives. Lord, take away our fear, take away our anxiety, take away our sin, make us holy, make us ready to be used by you for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.